It is July 3rd, 2013, and uh, I'm going to preach a message about mountain men tonight. Amen? Mountain men. And uh, to do that, I thought I'd shave my beard off so nobody would confuse I was talking about us, right? Actually, I hope to be a mountain man. You'll see why afterwards. I hope you are mountain men too. Turn with me to the book of Isaiah. Let's go to the second chapter. And uh, I have been contemplating something as we talk about mountain men. I've been thinking about the Messianic age. You know, on Monday nights in my home, we're teaching the book of Revelation. And I don't know what to say other than it is uh, really, really good. This last Monday, one of the things that we noticed is when we say uh, the Alpha and Omega, uh, who is, who was, and who is to come, how God presides over history, how from the creation of the world, he was presiding over history. How from the creation of Israel, from your new creation, and right through the end, he's presiding over history. And it's a comforting thought to think about him as always having been there, always present, and will always be in the future. The divine name of God, Yahweh, is a really special statement. The covenant-keeping God that never skips out on his promises. Amen? Well, that led me to Isaiah 2, thinking of the Messianic age. You're going to talk to me tonight? Last Wednesday, I had to come to the audience and preach from the third row. Y'all going to let me preach up here today? All right. So here comes Isaiah 2, starting in verse 1. This is what Isaiah, son of Amos, saw concerning Judah and Jerusalem. In the last days, this is Aharit HaYamim, the last days, from a Jewish standpoint, This speaks of the messianic age, the time period where Messiah would come. In the last days, the mountain of the Lord's temple will be established as chief among the mountains. It will be raised above the hills and all nations will stream to it. Many peoples will come and say, come, let us go up to the mountain of the Lord, to the house of the God of Jacob. He will teach us his ways so that we may walk In his paths, the law will go out from Zion, the word of the Lord from Jerusalem. He will judge between the nations and will settle disputes for many peoples. They will beat their swords into plowshares and their spears into pruning hooks. Nation will not take up sword against nation, nor will they train for war anymore. Come, O house of Jacob, let us walk in the light of the Lord." Sometimes when you're on a journey, sometimes when you're in something that is difficult, it helps to pick a landmark in the distance and run towards it. What you hear the prophet saying is it's difficult now, but there's a day coming when Israel will not be the tail, it'll be raised to the head. There's a day coming when you won't be the footstool, God will have raised us to the pinnacle. And every nation on earth is going to stream to the blessing that is given to Israel. It's a way of saying, I may not be where I need to be now, but I'm on my way there, and by the grace of God, I will get there. Anybody else have a week that says, I'm not where I need to be right now, but by the grace of God, I will get there. See, my heart is 
that we find boundary stones in the kingdom. We find landmarks. I'm one of those guys that I don't read street signs. I simply know what it looks like when I get there. Very frustrating to follow somebody like me because you'll say, hey, give me a list of turns and I can't do it, you know, but you can set me in anywhere of 10 or 15 cities and I know how to get where I want to go because as I'm going, I pick landmarks in uh, Mexico. There's a giant water tower looks like a martini glass. There may be a better way to get where I have to go, but that is my landmark, and I won't go any other way. I keep a visual reference everywhere that I go. In India, I have visual references where I go. I know what side to keep that big mountain on so that I can get there and back in one piece. No matter where we are, whether it's Africa or where I have visual landmarks, and I found the same thing in the kingdom. When we're thinking of the Messianic age, let's talk some visual landmarks. Turn with me to Proverbs 22. Say there when you were there, and we'll hit the 28th verse. Proverbs 22 and verse 28. Do not move an ancient boundary stone set up by your forefathers. That's pretty straightforward, isn't it? If your forefathers set it up there, it must be important. Don't move it. You know, I know on the map it looks like the line between the United States and Canada is a fairly straight line. In reality, it is hundreds and thousands of boundary stones and they're nowhere near a straight line. It's just nearly impossible to draw it like it should be drawn to scale or accurately. Many times we approximate boundaries. But in the Bible, the way they did this was there were giant landmarks. They were usually covered in plaster and something was inscribed upon them. So when Israel crossed through the Jordan, they took stones from the middle of the river and they set them up on the other side. And you remember the scripture says, when your children ask you what is the meaning of this, this is what you'll tell them. God wanted visual references everywhere you went. We're aiming towards something. We're aiming towards a time period in history when the world streams to Israel and the knowledge of the glory of God covers the earth like waters cover the sea. We're aiming for a time period where the king of the Jews reigns from David's throne and the entire world reverences him. This is what we're aiming for. But along the way, it's easy to lose your way, isn't it? All you have to do is read some Christian theology and you find out just how far off of that goal we can get. Pretty soon we can have reformers singing songs about golden streets and lollipops and carousels as if that's the goal of God. You can have people that have defined their entire life's work based on praying a prayer at an altar so you can go to some off-world place called heaven. You can get really, really far from the boundary stones that God set for us. When we're thinking of these boundary stones and not moving them, I want to remind you of a few things that you can see in the scripture. I'm going to start with some familiar ones and move to some more less familiar ones. Some obscure is not the right word, just not quite as conspicuous. Somebody say amen. Let me know you're awake, y'all. I'm, I'm going to slide a mirror out there somewhere and make sure you're still breathing. Y'all okay? You going to be all right tonight? Talk to me, Justin. You going to be all right? How about you, JJ? JJ, you got a haircut that looks good, man. You doing okay, Michael? Sometimes we need little marks in our life that let us know somewhere. Uh, give us an approximation of where we are in the journey. 
Israel had seven of them, for instance. They had a feast schedule that they rehearsed over and over and over, and it reminded them, kind of a ruler to lay down, that says, you know, after we pass through seven, something's going to happen. Something new will happen. They had this over and over. But maybe one of the very first things we see in all of the Bible is there are a couple trees in a garden. What chapter of Genesis is that, friends? They start off in the first chapter with many kind of trees, but in Genesis 2.9, turn there with me. Say there when you're there. You're going to have to make some noise. In Genesis 2.9, And the Lord God made all kinds of trees grow out of the ground, trees that were pleasing to the eye and good for food. In the middle of the garden were the tree of life, and the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. What were the trees good for? The trees were good for or were pleasing to the eye and good for food. This is not something we emphasize very often. In fact, because of a scripture in 1 John, we tend to think of three kinds of sin. We think of the pride of life. We think of the lust of the eyes. Uh, what's third way? And lust of the flesh. We tend to think on the lines of three sins. I want you to notice something. Before sin entered mankind, there were two trees in a garden and then a whole host of other trees, and they were there because they were good for food and they were pleasing to the eye. What one thing is left out here? Look at Genesis 3.6. Look when the snake and the woman are talking. When the woman saw that the fruit of the tree was good for food, well, of course it is. All the trees were that way. And pleasing to the eye. Of course it is. All the trees were that way. And also, what's that last one? Desirable for gaining wisdom. She took some of it and ate it. She also gave some to her husband who was with her, and he ate it. In the very beginning, we have some landmarks. Two trees. Where were they? In the middle of the garden. You're not going to miss it. In the middle of the place that God put you. And God said, all these trees are good for food. All these trees are pleasing to the eye. But who are you supposed to trust for wisdom? Who is it that's going to explain to you what is good and evil? Who is it that's going to teach you the right way to walk and the right way to live? And man began to seek some other source. Now, oddly enough, this shows up with a woman leading her household and a man following and they both ended up in a ditch. God held the man responsible first and the woman second and the snake third because that's how he ordered creation. But this boundary stone, this marker is set there for a reason. The boundary stone is a great big sign that says, you know what? When you look to something other than God for wisdom, it brings a curse and it brings death. Somebody say curse. curse. Death. Curse and death are these things we want. No, you could put a big hazard sign on it. It's a, it's a marker that says, don't do this. But how do these trees show up at the end of the scripture? Turn to Revelation 22. I told you we'd start with familiar ones and move to less familiar. In Revelation 22, starting in verse 2. Down the middle of the great street of the city on each side of the river stood the tree of life bearing Twelve crops of fruit, yielding its fruit every month. And the leaves of the tree are for the healing of the nations. Now look at verse 14. Blessed are those who wash their robes that they might have the right to the tree of life and may go through the gates of the city. Where the first boundary stone is two trees in a garden that say when you seek something other than God 
For wisdom, it brings you death. It brings you sin, sickness, disease, all of those things. We end this story with two trees in a garden that you again have access to life. There is no more curse, the next verse says. You have health and you have healing. It's almost as if in this roadmap that we're calling life, God said, here are the two extremes. And I can take you from the curse right into the blessing. The same way that you bumped up against this and it caused death, I can cause you to bump up against it and find life. You ever had a bad Monday? What day do you look forward to in the week? Friday. And you think, oh, Jesus, if you can get me from Monday to Friday, I'll be okay, don't you? What if we began to look at this creation and said, hey, before man sought out something other than God for wisdom, and what we might call an alpha eternity, before that faithful day when the woman ate from the tree and gave to her husband, she ate, how good was life? It was good, wasn't it? I mean, to walk with God in the garden, to have no sense of dying or shame. Can you begin to fathom how good that is? When you worship, you get a little taste of what that's like. You ever had a bad day, you get into worship, and, and it just melts away? They didn't need it to melt away. They didn't have bad days. There was nothing working in the creation against them in their own flesh. There may have been outside forces, Light and darkness were being separated. They had to subjugate the earth. But it wasn't inside of them. How good is Alpha Eternity, the time before the first two trees? It's awesome. Somebody say awesome. Y'all wake up. Cody, say awesome. Say it loud, brother. It's awesome. Now let's talk about the time after the two trees in Revelation, where the trees have healed the nations. There is no more death. There is no more curse. How good is that? Oh, my goodness, if we can just make it between the trees, you know. But when you think about eternity before the trees in the garden and eternity after the trees in the garden, it makes the time period between the trees relatively small, doesn't it? It's like saying if I could just get from Monday to Friday. You do that enough, my friends, and a couple years have gone by. God put landmarks in our life. Another one is rivers in the Bible. In Genesis, we see a river that uh, feeds the Garden of Eden. Man, how good is that? A river watering the garden flowed from Eden, and there it separated into four headwaters. Genesis 2.10. By the end of the book, we see a river that is feeding the very city of God. Literally, it's called a river of life. Ezekiel 47 says it teems with life and living creatures would be in it. How good are those landmarks where at one time a river was feeding the habitat that man lived in? Secondly, the end of the story is that the very river of life would be the source. It would flow from God's throne and from the Lamb straight into you. Oh, man, it's like a spring of living water welling up inside of you. When Ezekiel talked about it, he said he walked in it ankle deep, then knee deep, then waist deep, and then he began to swim in it, and it was so rough that nobody could swim in it. And he said it was teeming with life. These bookmarks are there for us for a reason. 
when you're having a difficult time, when you're looking around, you don't feel particularly anointed, when you've just left the throne room of God and have to take out the trash, change the diaper, and feed the dog. You can remember this is just the time between the trees. It's the time between the two rivers. This is temporary, friends. There is an eternal perspective that needs to get ingrained into our soul. It might say, I got knocked to my knees today, but tomorrow I will be on my feet. This is what caused the minor prophets to say things in like Micah 7, 8. Do not gloat over me, my enemy, for though I have fallen, yet will I rise. I don't know how your day goes. I can assume that your day goes much like my day. I mean, we're not all that different. Some days it's mountaintops. Other days it's valleys, isn't it? You ever have one of those days where you didn't particularly do anything? but maybe you did a bunch of other things in the previous weeks and it's all coming home to roost on the same day. Everybody you meet's like got a bone to pick with you, right? Got a way of beating you into the earth. Now, the guy who's, who's sharing that with you, it may have just been his one issue that day, you know, and he has no idea why you're not receiving it well. This is the human existence. This is the way that works. God put boundary stones there so you could look into the distance. Isaiah was in 740 B.C., and he's looking into the distance, and he's going, it's hell on earth now, but it's not going to stay that way. It was a resurrecting kind of hope. It's the same thing that says on a Wednesday you can put him in the grave, but when you get there Sunday morning, he won't be there, friends. There is no bigger landmark in all of the world, at least the biblical world, than the mountains. Let us turn to Psalm 36. You sang about it during worship. Say there when you were there. Two of you are there. When are the rest of you going to get there? Psalm 36, verse 6. Verse 5. Your love, O Lord, reaches to the heavens. Your faithfulness to the skies. Your righteousness is like the mighty mountain. Your justice like the great deep. Now, do you think that's just a pretty song lyric? I mean, before Third Day made it popular, did you know it was there? Oh, you know, it just seemed like the right thing to say. Your righteousness is like the mighty mountains. But really, what does righteousness and mountains have to do with each other? It's like the young man that is struggling on his first date to come up with a compliment, you know? And he looks at his girl and he says, you know, you're... Your hair is as beautiful and as brown as my mother's garden, you know? <laughs> Don't laugh. Have you ever read Song of Songs? You know? <laughs> her hair is like goats. Her nose is like a tower of Lebanon. I can't even describe the other things he's describing. Needless to say, he was happy to say each had its twin, though. <laughs> I mean, points out the strangest things. Why on earth would the Bible say that your righteousness is like the mighty mountains? Maybe it just means it's big righteousness. I don't know. Maybe it means it protrudes out of the earth. What is it that it could mean? When you begin to look at Bible mountains, it's an amazing thing. Now, we're familiar with trees in a garden. You've heard me preach about it before. Heard me preach about the time between the trees before. You're familiar with rivers in the Bible. We talk about the Jordan River a lot. We talk about the Nile, the Euphrates, the Royal Land Grant. We talk about 
rivers a lot in the Bible. But when is the last time you took out a Bible concordance and looked at the mountains in the Bible? Because it's an amazing thing to say God's righteousness is like the mountains in the Bible. In Exodus 3, 1, we have Moses. And Moses is tending a flock of Jethro. Jethro is the priest of Midian. And he crosses the desert and he gets to Horeb, the mountain of God. By the time you get to Exodus 4, you find out that Moses is not alone on this mountain. In verse 4, 14, then the Lord's anger burned against Moses and he said, what about your brother Aaron the Levite? I know he can speak well. He's already on his way to meet you. Where was Moses? He was on the mountain. And his heart will be glad when he sees you. So Moses' ministry call, Aaron's ministry call began where? On a mountain. Look at Deuteronomy 32 in verse 50. Let me put it on your screen. We're going to go through a few of these. There on the mountain that you have climbed, you will die and be gathered to your people just as your brother Aaron died on Mount Hor and was gathered to his people. Who died on a mountain? Both Moses and Aaron, their ministry call starts on a mountain and it finishes on a mountain. What would you call the time period in between? I would say that would be the valley where you do warfare with the Amalekites. Friends, we have to get from mountain to mountain. They're like boundary stones for us. And today may look like a valley, but a mountain is on its way. It's on the horizon. Why is this righteousness like mountains? Because you can see them in the distance and you can walk towards them a long time before you can get there. We have to cry out for that righteousness. And on one hand, you're credited with being there. And on the other, it is still in the distance. He's the God over eternity who saved you back then, is saving you now, and will save you in the future. His righteousness is ever present for those who are trusting in him. Moses' call started on a mountain and his life finished on a mountain. In 2 Chronicles, the third chapter, in the first verse, you find these words. Then Solomon began to build the temple of the Lord in Jerusalem on Mount Moriah, where the Lord had appeared to his father David. It was on the threshing floor of Aruna, the Jebusite, the place provided by David. Now you Bible scholars will know that this is also where Abraham sacrificed Isaac. You might also know that it's later the region of Golgotha. But God chose a special place to put his earthly temple. And where was it? It was on a mountain in the distance so that you could see it. That's a really interesting thing because in the book of Revelation, the 21st chapter and 10th verse, it says, and he carried me away in the spirit to a mountain great and high and showed me the holy city, Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God. The temple on earth was on a mountain. The temple that would be the millennial temple, the city of God, his people crafted into a temple. Where would it be? On the mount of God. What are we speaking about these kind of boundary stones? What he began on the earth that was flawed, he will finish with something heavenly planted on the earth that is perfect. The first trees we corrupted, or at least were corrupted by them. The second set of trees, we're cleansed forever with them. The first river only fed the earthly garden. The last river feeds the heavenly and earthly people. The first mountain was a place of ministry calling. The last mountain was a place of ministry completion. 
What we see in the Bible with these kind of boundary stones is that his righteousness that began so long ago will certainly be completed. How about Hebrews 8.5? They serve at the sanctuary that is a copy and a shadow of what is in heaven. This is why Moses was warned when he was about to build the tabernacle. See to it that you make everything according to the pattern shown you on the mountain. It wasn't just that Moses received a ministry call on a mountain. Moses kept going back to the mountain every time he needed to hear from God. And so did Elijah. And so did so many other men. And according to Hebrews 8.5, what did he see on the mountain? He saw a pattern of heavenly things. How important do you think the mountains are? Do you think it's any mistake that what Moses saw is a heavenly pattern on the mountain? Jesus' greatest sermon is called the Sermon on the... In Matthew 5, 1 says, Now, when he saw the crowds, he went up on the mountainside and sat down. His disciples came to him and he began to teach them. Blessed are they that. What Moses saw on a mountain in the heavens... He built on the earth. What Jesus saw in the heavens, He built on a mountain on earth. In you and in me. These kind of ancient boundary stones are there to cause us to be able to look around and say, He's not through with me yet. It's like a mountain in the distance that I can run towards. It's something that looks closer than it is sometimes, but never fades from sight. Am I the only one who was with me in Romania? Oh, look around, friends. We looked into the distance and said, I'm going to climb that mountain. (laughs) We're still going to climb that mountain. (laughs) That mountain was a lot further than it looked like it was. But we made it. We got all the way to the top, didn't we, Jim? Little rest, little stop. A little harder to get there than we thought it might be. But we look into the eyes of a creator that says, you can speak to a mountain and say, be removed into the sea. There's nothing that stands in our way. God gives you a glimpse into the past. He gives you a glimpse into the future. He is the God who is, who was, and who is to come. And he's telling you something. Look around and see the signs. I began a work in you. And I'll complete that work in you. In this church, we preach a hard message. Do you know why? Jesus preached a hard message. His apostles preached a hard message. But they were also surrounded by signs of encouragement all of the time. They could stumble and bloody their toe and nose and look up and know it's not over yet. Even old Abraham looked up and in the distance and do you know what he saw? A mountain. And at the moment that he thought he had to kill his son, he named it, the Lord will provide on this mountain. Mountains are special in the Bible. Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Those words were spoken on a mountain. And I've stood on that mountain in more ways than one. I can look and see where I was. I can see where I am. And I can see where I still need to get to. Anybody out there say amen? Amen. We preaching to anybody who's somewhere between the mountains? You know, there was a people that dwelt in the mountain valleys. The word 
Amalekite means warlike valley dweller. So Moses went up on a mountain, and as long as his hands were raised on that mountain, Joshua was in the valley, and he laid waste to the enemy. But whenever the visible sign of God's standard began to droop, they lost in the valley. How is it you think you win during these times? We need to keep our eyes on the standards that were revealed from the mountain. Not so much on where your feet are planted today, but where they're headed to. When you need encouragement, you look in the rearview mirror and see where you're not anymore. Destruction is behind us, friends. Resistance is with us. And freedom is just ahead of us. In the name of Jesus Christ, you cannot be stomped out. You just need to know where you're at in the race. How about this one? In Deuteronomy 11, verse 23, Then the Lord will drive out all the nations before you, and you will dispossess nations larger and stronger than you. Ah, that was not my verse. Let us go a couple more. Maybe it's 29. I'll grab it here real quick. It's blessings and curses. 29. When the Lord your God has brought you into the land, you are entering to possess... You are to proclaim on Mount Gerizim the blessings and on Mount Ebal the curses. Do you know where the people stood? They stood between the blessings and the curses. They stood where they could see Ebal and where they could see Gerizim. And the people shouted curses, one from the mountain, and blessings, one from the other mountain. And the people stood between them. And they were like visible markers. I have a choice here which direction my life is going to move towards. God has set before us life and death. He's made it plain for us to see. He's made it as plain as signs in the heavens and on the earth. Look at your brother next to you and say, you're a sign. Come on now. Now look at a pretty girl next to you and say, you're a heavenly sign. Now, if you're single, I apologize for that. We're somewhere between mountains right now. Listen, saints, there's an important point to this message. God has given us these milestones so that we might know where we are in the race because he does not want you to be discouraged. So from one mountain they shouted blessings, from the other mountain they shouted curses. In Matthew 4, 8, do you know where the devil took Jesus to face his greatest temptation? Again, the devil took him to a very high mountain and showed him all the kingdoms of the world and their splendor. Jesus' greatest temptation occurred on a mountain. In Matthew 17, the first and second verse, something else occurred on a mountain. After six days, Jesus took with him Peter, James, and John, the brother... I'm sorry, Peter, James, and John, the brother of James, and led them up on a high mountain. What happened on that mountain? transfiguration, blessings, and curses. Jesus faced everything on the mountains that the people of Israel faced on the mountains, and he was victorious in all. John 19, 17 identifies the place Jesus was killed in Aramaic as Golgotha, the place of the skull. It happens to be the region of Moriah, which is on a mountain. Jesus crucified on a mountain, but friends, Jesus ascended also from a mountain. The Mount of Olives is where he ascended. Matthew 28, 16, combined with Acts 1, 11 through 12, teaches us that. How important are mountains in the Bible? Do you think that it's irrelevant 
that God names them, that God draws our attention to them. Many of you are learning from everything from a hepatic structure to the number of consonants, to the number of words, to the number of names in a genealogy that nothing in the Bible is filler. God even arranged the mountains on the landscape of His promised land in a way that would teach us about Him. Mighty King Jesus in Zechariah 14. On that day, His feet will stand on the Mount of Olives. Turn with me to Isaiah 25. Say there when you were there. You want to turn to this one. You might want to mark it in your Bible. The truth is, sometimes I can look into your eyes like you can probably look into mine and I can tell how far you are between the mountains. Sometimes we can see when your last victory was. Sometimes we can see how far from victory you are yet. But if there's one focal point we need to address our eyes upon, if there's one thing in the distance we need to have our feet speed towards, friends, Isaiah saw it. It's Isaiah 25, starting in verse 6. On this mountain, the Lord Almighty will prepare a feast of rich food for all peoples. Say all peoples. Come on, let's go yame just like you and me. You don't have to be Jewish. You don't have to be Korean. You don't have to be Norwegian. All peoples. On this mountain, the Lord Almighty will prepare a feast of rich food. Rich food. I think that's worth just dwelling on for a minute. Now, if you're on a specially selective diet, I'm happy to tell you there's a day that you're going to, in the name of the Holy Ghost of the living God, break it. (laughs) If you have been raised in a Southern Baptist setting your entire life, you are also in for a rude awakening. Because on this mountain, the Lord Almighty will prepare a feast of rich food for all the peoples and a banquet of sparkling grape juice. No, it's not what it says, does it? There is a time coming when the living God on this mountain, whatever mountain he says it is, I'm going to call it the mountain of the Lord, is going to prepare the feast of Abraham. And it's going to have the finest rich foods, calorie-dense foods. Fat-laden foods. And is going to have the finest of aged wines. Why aged? Because wine gets better as it ages. The best of meats, sorry vegans, and the finest of wines. On this mountain he will destroy the shroud that enfolds all peoples, the sheet that covers all nations. He will swallow up death forever. Somebody say hallelujah. Hallelujah. The sovereign Lord will wipe away the tears from all faces. He will remove the disgrace of his people from all the earth. I may not be on that mountain yet, but I'm on my way in the name of Jesus. Today's disgrace is tomorrow's deliverance. I'm telling you, we do not have to dwell in the valley. In the name of Jesus, I may be here now, but I am on my way there. Sometimes you just have to look, and the sign might say, have you ever entered into Texas and seen that sign? You know which one I'm talking about. 
It's like 958 miles to El Paso. Oh, thanks. It may be lingering out there some distance, but you keep heading the direction you are heading and you will be in a disgrace-free zone. You will be in a tear-free zone. You will be in a death-free zone. You will be in a diet-free zone. Hallelujah! There is a day when we will have a barbecue that Texas would be jealous of. Father Abraham will show us how to smoke ribs. I'm trying to tell you, friends, that it will not always be as it is today. We live not like the rest of humanity, but with a hope that even those who sleep in the dust will rise to everlasting glory. We live with a hope that we don't have to grieve like the rest of men. We live with a hope that says a momentary failure is just that. My failures don't define me. They propel me. In the name of Jesus, I found one more way I need to grow to be like Christ. This will make you love correction. It's like a little mile marker between the mountains. It's like those tiny little marks on a ruler that nobody except cabinet makers know what they're for. I haven't made it from one inch to two, but praise God, I put a couple of those 30 seconds behind me. Sometimes it's just good to know you're making progress, isn't it? I encourage you to look around you and see where you are in relation to the mountains. The sovereign Lord will wipe away the tears from all faces. He will remove the disgrace of his people from all the earth. In that day, they will say, <laughs> I think we can practice now. In that day, we're going to say it. We might as well learn to say it now. Surely this is our God. We trusted in him and he saved us. Why do we say we're saved now? Because we believe we will be saved then. He is the God who was, the God who is, and the God who's to come. He saved me in the past. He's saving me now. And he will most certainly save me in the future. If you see something in my life that doesn't look like salvation, it is passing away and the new has come upon me. In the name of Jesus, if we don't give up, let up, or shut up, we will arrive where he has called us to go. Amen. He gave us the Holy Spirit as a deposit guaranteeing what is to come. This is not a deposit that says, here's a little gold, hang on to it. This is not a deposit that says, can I park something here for a while and you know I'll come back to get it? That's all silliness. This is a deposit that is inside of you that says, if you simply will listen to me, there is no chance you'll arrive at any other place than on that mountain on that day. He put in us the Holy Ghost guidance system. Is better than Google Maps? Is better than your GPS? He speaks from inside of you, and he can even give you the power to U-turn when everything in you says, nope. Where are you at in this journey? Because there is a day when we'll be able to say, this is the Lord, we trusted him. Let us rejoice and be glad in his salvation. Now, he goes on to say some really ugly things about some enemies here. 
I'm not going to focus on that today. But if you just want a little light reading, read those next four or five verses. He says, I'm going to grind you into the, well, nice people would say fertilizer, but that's not what it says. I'm going to smush you all around in it just like I was stomping hay into it. That's what God said about his enemies. Is he really concerned about what you can't overcome? He's really concerned about you trusting him. He's really concerned about you keeping your eyes on him, you persevering after him. He can take the enemies that today feel bigger than you, and he can grind them into stuff that looks a little bit like fertilizer. And he's going to do it. You know what this will make you do? Pray for those who persecute you. You can go, you seem so powerful now, but you're headed towards the fertilizer plant. You may have got me today, but I'm going to pray for you because you, you're going to have to switch sides or you're headed for the fertilizer plant. God said, vengeance is mine. It's mine to repay. You don't have to keep score. You don't have to. You just need to know where you are in relation to the mountain of God. That's all you need. And you know what? A little spark of joy will rise in your heart. How do you think his people have been so mistreated all over the planet and yet they maintain hope? Well, they've considered the outcome of the wicked, and they said they will be mowed down like grass. Don't let your feet slip, friends. Enter into the house of God. Turn with me to Revelation 1.8, and after that, I've got just one scripture for you. Say there when you're in Revelation 1.8. I've been quoting it all day. So, I am the Alpha. And the Omega. That's like saying I am the beginning and the end. I am the A and the Z. I began this and I will complete it. I am the Alpha and the Omega, says the Lord God, who is, who was, and who is to come, the Almighty, the God who presides over history. How does he provide, preside over history? Well, his book completes history. In Genesis 1, we have a created earth. In Revelation 21, we have an earth that is passed away. In Genesis 1, we have a sun that governs the day. In Revelation 21, we don't even need a sun anymore. In Genesis 1, we have darkness called night. In Revelation 22, we have no night. In Genesis 1, we have seas that divided mankind. By the time you get to Revelation 21, you don't even need seas anymore. In Genesis 3, we have the entrance of sin into the world. In Revelation 21 and 22, we have a world that has been expunged of sin. In Genesis 3, 19, we have death that entered the creation. In Genesis 21, 4, there is no more death. In Genesis 3, 24, we were driven from Eden. In Revelation 22, we have returned to Eden. In Genesis 3.24, we were denied the tree of life. And in Revelation 22.14, we are granted access to the tree of life yet again. In Genesis 2.18, we have the first wedding, the first Adam getting married. In Revelation 19, we have the bride of Christ marrying the last Adam. We have a God who presides over history. He is the Alpha and He is the Omega. And Philippians 1.9 teaches us that what He began in you, He will certainly complete in you. 
All you need to do is keep your eyes on His righteousness, which is like the mighty mountains. So I was reading Isaiah about the Messianic age, and I came across this passage. Turn with me to Isaiah 11. Verse 9. They will neither harm nor destroy on all my holy mountains. For the earth will be full of the knowledge of the Lord as the waters cover the sea. There will be a day, friends, when all the nations will stream towards the same mountain you're heading towards. There will be a day when everybody on the earth will know the Lord just like you do. There will be a day when weapons of war have been turned into uh, machines of prosperity and peace. There will be a day when those who hate God have been driven from the creation and all that's left are those that love Him. I'm trying to tell you that it may feel like Monday, but the weekend's on the way. Amen? Amen. Let's stand to our feet. I remember the first time I felt real Holy Ghost conviction in a church service. The clock was digital and I could still hear it ticking. <laughs> it was one of those church services that is only 58 minutes long and it felt like it was five weeks long. That's no way to go through the creation. There's no way to go through the time between the mountains. We don't have to dwell in guilt and shame. We don't. What we learned on the mountain, if we learned anything else, is that God wants to wipe away our shame. What we learned on the mountain, if we learned anything else, is that he died to free us. And that all he wants us to do is to chase after him. That's it. He wants us to run with a reckless abandonment of concern for anything but him. That's all he wants out of us. And when you stumble along the way, he will pick you up and point you towards his holy mountain. You have one obligation, that's to never stop running towards it. Why don't we join hands as a family? Let's ask that in the name of Jesus, the mighty Holy Ghost of God would speed our journey towards that mountain. And then let's believe he's going to do it. And if you feel like a failure, stop it. If you feel like God's stepchild, quit it. If you were God's stepchild, he wouldn't have brought you here today and he wouldn't have given me a message like this. You've all heard the kind of messages we can preach. And when we get a stepchild, we let them know. There's not an Ishmael in this bunch. You've been bought by the blood of Jesus. We have a lot to live up to, but you know what? He credited us with it before he ever asked us to live up to it. That's how good he is. He wants you to follow after him, but he doesn't want you to live under such pressure that you feel like a failure all of the time. So let's just not. Is that fair enough? Did you know that your emotions were meant to serve you, not rule you? So you tell your flesh how it is going to feel and make it obey you. Okay? 
I didn't feel all that good today. Nobody knows why, because I'm a sinner. Uh, I'm a filthy pig. But I don't have to be that way. So in the name of Jesus, I can tell my flesh how it's going to feel. And it will obey me. I don't need an antidepressant. I don't, I don't need some wonder drug from somewhere. I simply need to believe that I have authority over sin. And then act like it. You have that choice right now. Let's do it together.